So back in the uh, late 1900s, like in the year, uh, in, the 18, in the 1980s, there were three very prominent G'daylim in America. When I, that was sort of when I was in high school and I was coming of age. Like these were the three main pillars of, uh, of American Jewry at the time. It was Ramesha Feinstein, of course, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, and Rav Ruderman. There was also others, Rav Gifter, and uh, Rav Aaron Schechter, and, uh, and certain others, but those were the, I would say, the main senior American leaders of Klai Yisrael. Ramesha was, of course, the Paisak Adar, the Rashiva of Mesifta Tiferes Yerushalayim in the Lower East Side, and then there was Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, who was... Um, he was the Rashiva of Tarvadas, and Rav Ruderman was a Rashiva in Ner Yisrael in Baltimore. There was a, a story that's told, and I checked into this story because I spoke to the Hassan and I did a lot of research into this. There was a Hassan who was studying in Ner Yisrael in Baltimore. His name was Shaya Goldberg, and he was learning under his Rashiva of Ruderman. And when he became engaged, he went over to his Rosh Hashiva and he asked him, of course, would you be my Masada Kedushin? Would you officiate my marriage? But the Rosh Hashiva checked his calendar and found out that he already had a, uh, a prior engagement, unfortunately. That night he was already supposed to be somewhere else. So Shaya's family lived in the Lower East Side. So his father was very close to Ramesh, and he was secretly sort of happy that Rav Ruderman had a, private, had a prior commitment because that way he could go to Rashiva to Ramesh, and uh, ask him to be Masada Kedushin. And they lived in the same apartment building. And when Shaya's father went and asked Ramesh to be Masada Kedushin, Ramesh warmly accepted. He was very happy to, uh, to do so. Now, a few days before the wedding... Rav Ruderman called Shaya over in the basement and said, I have wonderful news. That prior commitment that I had that was the reason why I couldn't be by your wedding, uh, something happened and it doesn't, I don't have to be there anymore, so now I could be Masada Kedushin by your wedding. So Shaya was elated, but he and his father had to tell Rav Meisha, who was already, who graciously assured them um, meaning, so they went and they knocked on the door together. At first, Shaya didn't want to go with him. His father said, no, you're coming with me. This is all your fault. And uh, they went together and uh, they knocked on Ramesh's door. They were nervous. Ramesh right away picked up the problem and he says, don't worry about it. I'm very happy. You know, he's your Shiva. He should be Masada Kedushin. And everything was, uh, and he was happy to come just as a guest. He doesn't need any COVID. So at the Chassan's Tish, before the Chuppah, Rav Ruderman was sitting next to the chassan and, you know, getting his papers ready, the tnaim and the ksuba, and all of a sudden Ramesha walks into the room. Rav Ruderman, I guess, didn't hop that Ramesha had a kesher with them at all. And when Ramesha sat down on the other side of the chassan, Rav Ruderman insisted that you will be Masada Kedushin. No, Shaila, you're the God Adar, you're the Paisa Adar, you're the Tzadik You're going to be Masada Kedushin. So Ramesha said... No, you are the Chassan's Rosh Hashiva, and you're going to be Masada Kedushin. So Rav Ruderman said back to him, okay, but you're older, so it's proper that you, sh- you should be Masada Kedushin. 
Ramesha then responded, you're right, I am older, so you have to listen to me. <laughs> so Ramesha smiled, and, I mean, Ravunaman smiled, and he conceded, so he agreed to be Masada Kedushin. And even though Rav Ruderman, uh was Masada Kedushin, but he honored Rav Meisha to fill out the Ksuva. It's also like a kibud. I'm sure Rav Meisha got a bracha by the chuppah as well. But as far as like just arranging for the Kedushin, he was the one that filled out the Ksuva. And he says, this is how I am being Masada the Kedushin. If I'm Masada the Kedushin, I can arrange the Kedushin the way I want to, and I want you to fill out the Ksuva. And so it was. So I asked the chassan if he had a picture of this story. You know, I mean, presumably it's at a chassan, he had a picture. So he, sure enough, he, he sent me a few of them, and I picked, it, I picked one of them out. And this photograph was taken at the end of the debate as Rav Ruderman handed the ksuva to Rav Meisha to complete. Okay, let's find another one. Oh, this is a great one. Okay, so Rav Nassim C. Finkel was the uh, Rosh Hashiva of the Mir in Yerushalayim. And I don't know if you've ever read his biography or heard much about him, but he was uh, really an inspirational figure, because first of all, he was a Rashiva of the largest Rashiva in the world, the Mir Nushalayim. He was an American-born Gadol. He literally was born in America in Chicago, right? He went to the, which high school did he go to? He went to both. He went now, to, technically, they'll say he went to the academy, but he went to the Yeshiva to learn Kodomar, and went to the academy to learn general stuff. Uh-huh. So the academy takes all the claim for Nassim. Uh-huh. He went to both. Yeah, that, 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 um, that's Ida Crown. Yeah. So, um, and, but besides for all of the other things that he had, which were amazing, how he was able to like grow up like in a regular American town, maybe a little bit, uh, would you say that he grew up modern Orthodox or something, whatever the equivalent of it was back then. But he, he basically went to Eretz Yisrael and he never looked back and he became like, like a tremendous guy in learning. And, um, but he also suffered later in his life from a debilitating disease. He had Parkinson's, and it was very painful even to watch him, let alone to be him, but just to see him, the way he moved, and he shook, and he didn't want to take medication to, to calm it down because that would affect his ability to learn with the proper focus. So, but in spite of everything, he was able to give many chaburas and, and host Talmidim in his house and learn with countless chavrusas and he was a tremendous builder. He went all around the world fundraising and dinners and uh, an amazing story. And the amazing, the most amazing thing about it is that 
as many Talmidim as, as, as were in the mirror, thousands and thousands, maybe five, six, ten thousand, I don't know how many are, are in the mirror. Like, there are many big buildings that are full of Talmidim of the Mir Yeshiva. He made it his business to know every single Talmud's name as his own son, which is an amazing thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's not easy even to remember, you know, a few hundred people's names, let alone thousands, but he, with Parkinson's, but he managed to do it. One thing that he uh, did every year was to arrange uplifting weekend getaways for the student body during Ben Azmanim. And the Rashiva himself attended. On Friday, Reb Nassensu would make his way by wheelchair from one playing field to the other, watching Bachram play ball or competing in other games. Now, this is a picture that was widely circulated. I, didn't really, I never really was able to ask the person who took the picture for permission because I didn't know who it was, but it was like certain things you rely that it's okay to use because it's like it became like Hefker, like it was all over, circulated all over. And um, in this particular photo, which was taken uh, a few weeks, three months before he passed away, Reb Nassim Tzvi is looking on as two yeshiva bachrim, two talmidim of his are playing chess at one of these outdoor um, weekend getaways that yeshiva sponsored. And so close to the students' field to their rabbi that when one of the chess players was asked later if the yeshiva's presence at the game made him nervous, I mean, you could imagine like if you're playing a game of chess and the yeshiva mirror is like looking at your move and like, you know, and like he's like, oh my gosh, this guy is really not, you know, it's probably very intimidating to sit in front of, you know, of Nassim Siyah, I'm sure he knew how to play chess himself, um, if, so they asked him, did it make you nervous? And his reply was, no. I was actually thinking that maybe the Rashiva could suggest a good move. So that was, uh, this is a picture. Now, there's something very cute, like a cute PS to this uh, picture, and maybe you'll notice it. I think one of the Bachem was, was wearing like a, he was wearing like a T-shirt or something, and it wasn't, he didn't want the picture getting out. Maybe it wasn't good for Shidduchim or something to have him sitting in a t-shirt or a polo shirt. So if you look very carefully, um, the, the sleeve, meaning the shirt of one of them was like photoshopped and superimposed on the other. So if you look, it's just like an exact mirror image. You'll see like the creases in the sleeve were like uh, identical, and it's pretty, pretty cool. Can you see that? Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't have noticed that I now pointed it out, right? He's very cool. Like, if you look at the picture of him, like when he was young, he was very good looking, like very, very popular and. Yeah. Can you see how the creases in the shirt are the same? Well, it was a very good job. I guess they wanted to get the same shadow, you know, the same. It's hard to tell, right? All right, let's do one more. 
Okay. There were two, there are many heroes during the Holocaust. Um, some were doing a lot in America to try to save the Jews in Europe. Some were in Europe in the, during, in the storm of, uh, of, of the Holocaust trying to give chizuk and encouragement to their fellow Jews who were suffering and going through so much in spite of what they themselves were going through. So here we have a picture of the Blujava Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael Spira, together with the Rosh Hashiva of Tarvadas, Rabbi Gedal Yashar. They were in a picture together. I'm going to pass it around after. But what's interesting about this picture is that, exactly like I said, both of them were heroes of the Holocaust, but on different sides of the world. The Blujava Rebbe was a very great hero uh, for his brethren in the death camps. He had bold leadership, and he was Makari of many Jews, and he had, there was amazing stories. If you want to read a lot about him, there's a, a famous book on the Holocaust called Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust by Yaffa Eliach. And a lot of the stories were based on interviews that she conducted with the Blue Rebbe, who lived in Borough Park. She visited him, and she got a lot of amazing stories uh, from him. On the other side of the sea was... Rav Gedal Yashar. Rav Gedal Yashar was, he actually was born in Europe, but he came to America, and he was bred, he was developed in the yeshiva system of America, and he eventually became, at a very young age, the yeshiva of Tarvadas. I think of Aaron Cutler was quoted as saying that he's the first American-raised godly. He wasn't born in America, but he was raised in America. Rav Gedal Yashar was the first American-raised godly. That's a very... You know, since then we've had others, Rav Gifter and many others, Rav Aaron Schechter and, uh, and, and the like, but basically uh, these are G'dayim that were born, uh, that, were, that were produced in America. The Blujava Rebbe used to always tell over astounding stories that he experienced in the Holocaust, in the Valley of Death, the splendor of his nation even in the darkest chapter of this exile. And he felt that the reason he survived was so that the future generations will know what our people went through. In a book that I wrote called Great Jewish Treasures, I have an artifact of his. I think one year we, last year we did that, right? I don't know if we did the, that particular piece. But I, I found in Borough Park, I traced down in Borough Park in somebody's house, there's a shifer. And this shifer was blown or was, or was used by the Blue Rebbe on Rosh Hashanah in the camps. And how did this shifer, how was it smuggled in to the camps? So I don't know how exactly it was brought into the camp, but it was brought to the Rebbe in a hot, scalding hot cauldron of coffee. The Nazis used to like make a big urn of coffee for people. It's not the coffee that we're used to. It's like 99% hot water and a little touch of coffee, just to be say. And on the bottom of this coffee urn on Rosh Hashanah, they dropped the shifer and they were able to like smuggle it into different bunkers somehow, bunks of the camp, and this is, uh, this is the, uh, and I call it like the shifer from the, the coffee pot or something, and, and uh, I actually blew the shifer. It's, you know, it's an amazing thing to be able to discover, I don't know how it survived, but somehow it was smuggled out of the camps, and, and it survived. It still exists till this day. And 
he used to tell over all these stories and, you know, some stories of Jewish heroism and some stories of Jewish tragedy. Um, Reb Gedalia Shar, for his part, did not talk about it at all. He was doing a lot during the war also in America. He was involved with the Vat Hatzalah. He was trying to send care packages to Jews in Europe either during the war or right after the war when they were in DP camps and the displaced persons camp. And he was doing everything and anything that he could to save Jewish lives during the war. But when his children, when his grandchildren would ask him, you know, Zaidi, tell us over what you did during the Holocaust. We heard you did heroic things. He refused to say anything. Quite unlike the Blue Rebbe, he refused, who, who was always talking about the Holocaust and always telling over the stories of, of our people's greatness, the Blue the Gedalia Shah refused. And the reason why is he quoted a var from the Rijna Rebbe. The Rijna Rebbe was one of the great Hasidic Rebbes. We've spoken about him, I think, in last year, about how he was a Rebbe that acted very regally. He, he would... He, he lived in a palace. We have pictures of the palace that he lived in. He literally lived in a palace. He wore golden boots, and he wore like a clothing that were stitched of gold, and he had uh, on his table gold plates and gold cups and gold silverware, goldware. And, uh, and he lived like he had a golden carriage. Eventually, by the way, the Tsar of Russia had him banished from Russia. He kicked him over out of Russia. He went and he had to go across the border to a, a place called Sadiger, uh, which is also um, another branch of this region of Hasidus, because the, the Tsar was, was jealous of how ostentatiously, how regally this Rebbe lived. He thought it was like a, he was competing with the Tsar himself, who lived quite well. But he felt that's the degree of by which his... his, his you know, his level, and why did he do this? Do you think because he wanted to live like a king? He felt that as a Hasidic Rebbe, it behooved him to act like a king, to act like a melech. He has Hasidim, and his Hasidim admire him, and the, the, the more um, pronounced and the more, you know, lavish his lifestyle is, the more royal he would be, and the more his Hasidim would look at him as, as the melech that he was. I think we said last year that the once by Kiddush Levana, the Rebbe was outside with his, with his coat, his beautiful coat, his fur coat, and his, his golden boots. And then when everybody started walking out, walking back in, and it was freezing cold, what was on the ground? Blood. blood. Very good. They saw blood on the ice where the Rebbe was standing. That was very strange. Why is there blood under... And then it turns out that the Rebbe, even though he had golden boots but he didn't put a soul on the bottom of those boots. His whole demeanor of Malchus was only external, it was only superficial because he was playing the role of Hasidic Rebbe and he felt that that's the way to do it. But in terms of, but he recognized at the same time how many of his Hasidim were so poor and so impoverished and, and they didn't have shoes on their feet, many of them. So he didn't put soles on his feet so his, his feet themselves were standing on the ice as he was saying Kiddush Levana, and they cracked, his feet cracked from the, from the freezing cold, and that was what the blood was on the ground. Just to give you an example of how he didn't really live lavishly in the fullest sense. It wasn't, wasn't all about him. Nothing was about him. It was for Hashem. It was for his chasidos. 
and he felt that this is the way a rebbe is supposed to carry himself, but in terms of personally, he was very much one with a Hasidim. So the original rabbi used to say that on Rosh Hashanah we say HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Zoycher HaNishkaches. HaKadosh Baruch Hu remembers all things that were forgotten. I mean, a lot of times we do Averis and we forget about them. Hashem doesn't forget about anything. Hashem remembers every single Avera that you do. That's a simple Pshat in the Tefillah. But the way the Rishner understood V'zeich HaNishkach, he understood in a homiletic way, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu remembers only the things, HaZeicher HaNishkach Whatever a human being forgets, Hashem remembers. If a human being remembers, Hashem Kaviyachal forgets. Sometimes we do like a mitzvah, and we don't let anyone not know about that mitzvah. Oh yeah, I gave a lot of money this year to tzedakah. You know, so you're remembering everything that you did. You remember all the chesed, all the tzedakah, all the, all the terror that you learned, and you're bragging about it constantly. If you remember it, and you're making sure that everybody remembers it, Hashem Kaviyachal is going to forget about it. You're getting your, your, your covet for it. You're taking care of your own, you're your own press agent. If you forget about things, if you don't discuss things, and you do everything very, very surreptitiously, and you don't brag about things, and you do things and nobody knows about them, so HaKadosh Baruch Hu remembers those things. Zeicher, he remembers only the things that are nishkachas, that you allow to be forgotten. But if you're not allowing them to be forgotten, Hashem forgets about them. Quoting this Rishoner, Rabbi Yashar used to say that that's why I don't want to talk about my experiences during the war. It's true, it's, sometimes it'll be easier for, you know, be, everyone's asking me, what did you do during the war? What did you do during the war? And I could easily say it, and it would look good for me. But the reason why I'm not saying it is I want Hashem to remember. I don't care about what other people remember, no. But I want Hashem to always remember what I did during the war. And so the more I make an, a conscious effort to, to forget about it, to put it beyond me, to only focus on what I still have to do and not to rest on my laurels and look back and, and focus on what I've accomplished. So the hope is that hopefully Hashem will uh, remember. If I could forget what I did, then Hashem will remember.